Good morning. We are in uh, the book of Romans, uh, the last chapter, chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 17 uh, to 20. Romans uh, chapter 16, verses 17 to 20. And I'm going to say a couple of things uh, before we get started again uh, about COVID number 19. Uh, number one, um, uh, your church, uh, meaning your leadership, uh, your pastors, your elders, uh, the staff, uh, would request that you uh, continue to send them your prayer needs because we do care for you and we do pray over those uh, as a team. So if you would uh, send those to uh, the church, uh, we will continue to pray. Uh, number two, um, if you have financial needs uh, because of COVID-19, perhaps you have lost your job uh, and you uh, are in uh, financial uh, straits, as it were, having difficulties, uh, feel free to let us know uh, at the church uh, and uh, we will be glad to do what we can to assist you, uh, but you need to let us know how we can help you. Uh, number three, uh, Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 13, uh, Paul says, for you were... Uh, call to freedom, brethren, uh, only do not, do not turn your freedom into an, uh, an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Uh, great wise words that we should pay attention to at a time like this. Uh, it's easy to live according to the flesh. I see it a lot when I go shopping with people hoarding everything. Uh, you know, how many rolls of toilet paper does a person need? Uh, we should be taking care of people and sharing with people. And Paul says, uh, don't don't take advantage of the situation in fleshly activity, but learn to serve each other by loving them. So how are you going to do that? How are you going to love others? How are you going to serve them? Also, I would say based on Hebrews 4.16, where we are challenged by the author of Hebrews to boldly approach the throne of grace, I would say just don't talk to others about COVID-19. Talk to the only one who can actually do something about it, and that's God. Talk to him and make your request known to him. And then lastly... I would uh, call you and challenge you to be courageous. Uh, back in the day, uh, the army of Israel thought that uh, Goliath, Goliath was uh, too big to defeat. Uh, then along came David, and David thought that he was too big to miss. Uh, and what I would say is uh, COVID-19 is our Goliath, uh, and we must have the attitude of David, uh, that he is too big to miss, and God can definitely uh, help us uh, to take him on and to uh, be victorious. And so we uh, pray for our leadership uh, inside and outside the church in the secular and the sacred world. Uh, and might we collectively have the faith of a young David uh, not to be fearful. In light of those things, uh, let's pray as we uh, look at what Paul had to say to the Romans in closing. Let's pray. Uh, God, thank you just for the opportunity to open the word. Thank you for uh, technology that allows us to be able to do this. Uh, and we pray that as we listen, your spirit uh, would be there to comfort, to guide, uh, to give insight, to give wisdom. Uh, to plant the seeds of truth in our hearts. Uh, and may we truly look at Paul's words here, uh, designed for such a day as this, and apply them in such a way that we can be a light uh, to those about us and also build up your church. And we pray for those in our church that you would use the words in a great way. In Christ's name, amen. From Romans chapter uh, 1, verse 1, uh, through chapter 15, uh, verse 13, uh, Paul basically has uh, told sinners uh, how to get right with God, how to get justified in God's courtroom, and that is by placing their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, in chapter 15, verse 14, through chapter 16, verse 16, uh, Paul 
in his closing remarks uh, shows us through his activity, uh, the, through the things that he says, how a, a godly maturing Christian who's justified by faith actually behaves in life. And so we've learned about mature walking by just studying Paul. Uh, those two concepts in the book lead us to two questions. Number one, uh, each person must come to the terms with, uh, are they rightly related to God? Or to put it differently, are you ready to stand before God when he calls you to give account? And the only way to get prepared to stand before God uh, is to stand by faith with Jesus, the Christ who died for your sin. Number two, uh, by looking at Paul's uh, closing words uh, to the uh, Romans, along with our analysis last week of uh, the many names that he mentions there of the great saints and what that taught us, we must ask ourselves, is my life actually moving toward holiness? Am I uh, more mature this week than I was last week? And what's the evidence that I'm moving on to m maturity? Uh, in chapter 16, verse 17 uh, through 20, which I want to look at this, this morning, Paul basically throws up a rhetorical curveball uh, because in his long list of saying uh, uh, hi and goodbye to people in Rome, uh, he has this to say in verse 17, which I want to read. It says, Now I urge you, brethren, to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience, he says, has reached to all. Therefore, Paul says, I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And then he closes in verse 20 by saying, the God of peace will soon crush uh, Satan under your feet. Then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Uh, great words, uh, but powerful words. Why in the world would Paul go through a long string of uh, greetings to Christians in Rome, and right before he closes the book out, starting in verse 21, he happens to throw in this uh, pastoral analysis of, you need to be careful who you're listening to. Well, I think he's a wise pastor. Uh, and as a wise pastor, Paul knows that the devil is always on the prowl, as Peter said. He's a roaring lion, always looking to whom he can devour. Uh, and being an astute leader as Paul was, he understood uh, that the, de the devil's main attack against the church uh, is to destroy its unity. And so he says right before he gives parting words to the Romans, pay attention that your unity, which is a, a goldmine to the, to the power of the church in a culture, uh, is not compromised uh, by the old devil. Well, how do we do that? How do we safeguard the unity of the church? And that's what he talks about in verses 17 to 20. And you, basically you could say that uh, COVID-19 is another kind of an interesting uh, attack, you could uh, say, from our adversary. Uh, he's tried every means possible by which to silence the church uh, down to not, in, not letting the church actually get together. But thank God for technology. Uh, we can still get together and oppose him and teach his God's saints uh, how to build up the church even when we're not in a building per se because the church is greater than the building. It's God's people. So how do we safeguard the unity of the church? I would uh, say as your pastor uh, who shepherded you for the last, I think about close to 12 years, uh, unity is probably the greatest thing that we possess as a church. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. 
Uh, we are unified, even though we are not all in agreement on everything. How can you take 2,200 people, especially in the D.C. environment, uh, and have them be in agreement on every single thing? That, that's impossible. Uh, but we are in agreement on the major areas of doctrine, of the things that matter most, like the deity of Christ, the concept of the Trinity, how a sinner is saved, etc. We hold those things dear and will die for those things. But we are highly unified, which empowers us then to reach the culture because we have an external focus because there's, there's that bond of unity between us as brothers in Christ. But unity is like, a, like the, the shell of an egg. Uh, it's spherical and provides protection for, for, the, for the egg, but it only takes a certain kind of strike uh, to compromise that shell. And a unity is a, is a, can be a fragile thing. It can just take one doctrinal heresy. It can take one uh, pugnacious person that can attack a church from within and cause disunity. So Paul says, before he leaves the Romans, make sure that you guard your unity. You safeguard it. Uh, it's the same thing that he told the Ephesians before he departed uh, uh, from Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 verses 28 to 31. He told the elders there that they uh, as well should be giving attention to guarding their church from wolves that would infiltrate the church and seek to destroy the unity of the church. So how do you guard the unity of the body, which is one of the most precious things that we have and which is what has allowed us to do great things for God in Northern Virginia? Well, I'm going to grammatically move down through Paul's uh, argument and uh, isolate what he says to us to teach us how to safeguard unity. Verse 17, uh, I've entitled, uh, The Road to Safe Safeguarding Unity. Here Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and to turn away from them. Uh, from that little verse uh, come uh, basically two Bible study uh, concepts, two hermeneutical concepts. You would want to analyze who is he talking about and what does he tell us to do with them? Uh, well, first of all, we need to back up and look at the verb that he uses here. He says for us to keep our eye on these two kinds of people, to keep our eye on. Uh, that's an infinitive of purpose grammatically, uh, and it's a present tense concept. It means you should always be keeping your eye on the two kinds of people that he talks about who can destroy unity. Uh, the word to keep your eye on uh, is uh, interesting in Greek. It's okopeo, uh, and it means to intently study something. Uh, years ago when my dad was a customs officer, he was uh, working the truck gate in Calexico, California, and a double rig... Uh, gas tanker came in from uh, Mexicali. And my dad interviewed the driver, uh, and uh, then he climbed on top of each of the, the giant uh, oil rigs, the shiny aluminum type uh, uh, trailers, and he opened the, the hatch and looked down in there, and sure enough, he saw gas, so he closed both of them, and he went and he talked to the driver again. And then he said, he thought to himself, the guy just seemed a little edgy. Uh, and so he said, because he seemed edgy, he thought, I should probably check this truck out a little bit more. So he climbed back on top of one of the trailers, popped the hatch back open, rolled up his U.S. Customs officer sleeve, shoved his arm down into the gasoline, uh, and in about a foot, it bottomed out. Uh, and both trailers had uh, a special stainless steel um, box built around the mouth of the opening. They had backfilled it with gasoline, but both vehicles were... Uh, um, packed with uh, several tons of marijuana. Uh, my dad was quite impressed. He held the marijuana seizure record by a single officer for many years, I think. Uh, and they took his picture in front of this giant stash of uh, dope that he had uh, uh, found. But the only way that he found it was he was carefully analyzing the situation. 
Well, Paul says that in the same way, uh, keep your eye on those uh, people who, well, they want to destroy the unity, but, but they're, they're two kinds of people. And he mentions them. Number one, he says, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. Um, Dicostasia is the word here to cause dissensions. And it, it grammatically means a person who lives in a state of being factious. I mean, this is all they live for. Not that this would apply to the DC environment at all, but um, it is the kind of person that they live for the argument. Uh, they, they live to, to create issues, to ask questions, to subvert people. Uh, wherever they go, uh, there is always brouhaha and problems forming. But, it, but it's never them. Uh, they're, they're just there to ask questions. Um, but they cause divisions. Perhaps you have met them before. I've seen them in church uh, myself many times. It's uh, over the years of being a Christian. Uh, the divisive person. Paul says, keep your eye on them. Watch them carefully. Uh, well, what kind of divisions do they cause? This, this dissentious kind of person. Uh, well, I just went through the, the New Testament and pulled out some kinds of divisions that uh, these kinds of people cause. And I'll, uh, I'll just highlight some of them to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 10 to 15, Paul tells us that they create personality divisions. And in the Corinthian church, it was basically uh, who's following who? Uh, some were for Apollos, uh, some were for following Paul, some bragged that they'd been baptized by Apollos, some bragged they'd been baptized by Paul. Once you divide your church up over who, which leader you like more than the other one, well, that's, dissens that's dissension, that's divisive, that's not of God. Who's causing that? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, uh, there was a, a sexual issue, a sexual sin that was being tolerated in their church. Uh, and that sexual division of that sin that was being um, left unchecked caused the division in that body that was pretty heated and Paul had to step in and deal with it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 11, uh, the, the Christians in Corinth were suing each other in courts of law. Paul says, what are you doing? Aren't we supposed to handle our own problems? Legal divisions. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Uh, false worship divisions. Uh, ch chapter 10, verses 22 to 33. Uh, there are gray area divisions. Uh, where a, a person pushes their Christian liberty beyond what they should at the expense of others. Um, we also read in a... 1 Corinthians 15, regarding the resurrection of Christ, uh, there can be doctrinal divisions, uh, as there was in their particular church. Um, 3 John chapter, or, uh, well it's not a chapter, chapter 1, verses 9 to 12, uh, we run into an individual named Diotrephes, uh, who is a leader in the church, uh, and he is all about leadership divisions. He is a top-down, authoritarian, dictatorial type of leader. He controls the, the church that John is writing to with an iron fist. And John writes and says, I'm, I'm going to deal with Diotrephes, who's not the kind of leader God wants. So there's leadership divisions. There's devil's advocate divisions. That's the kind of person like a Pharisee who's constantly asking questions to throw people off balance and to create divisions. And on and on go the divisions. There's many more. You can read my notes online uh, tomorrow uh, when they're posted. But you get the picture. This is the kind of person who lives to create problems wherever they go. Years ago, when I uh, hired my first, uh, well, uh, full-time staff member uh, when I was in California, uh, I went through a bunch of resumes. I hired a, hired a young man that looked great on paper, uh, interviewed well, etc. Uh, moved him to be part of our church. Everything was growing fantastic at the time. Um, 
And then little problems started uh, occurring between people and people were arguing with each other and people were beginning to divide up against each other and I went on vacation and uh, the elders called me and things were really going south between people and I was like, what in the world? Where is this coming from? And so uh, we did some investigation. Uh, they, the elders did while I was away and when I got back. And after a lot of hours spent in investigating the source of our problems between people all of a sudden, it was all tied back to the pastor that I had hired. And so the elders uh, uh, asked him basically, was he the one who was passing around dis disinformation to create dissension in the body? And he said, yes, I, I'm, I'm the man. And they said, why in the world would you want to disrupt the peace of a church body? And he said, well, my goal was, and I can't believe he confessed this. He said, my goal was to make the church so chaotic that you would fire the pastor and then you would hire me. Un unbelievable. Um, uh, you could probably guess right, he did not have a job very long after that. Uh, and once we dealt with the divisive person, peace came back to the body. So Paul says, make sure you keep your eye on those who create dissensions. The second person that he uh, says to watch out for is one who causes hindrances. Uh, I'll give you the Greek word. You'll automatically know what the Greek word is when I tell it to you because it sounds very much uh, like a word we know. The Greek word for hindrances is scandalone. Scandalone. Scandalone, like scandalous. Um, this is a, a Greek word that literally means to set a trap. So it's like if you set a rat trap with the bait and the spring and the crushing bar, etc. That, that's what this word literally means in the Grecian culture. It's like a person who sets a trap. They have no intention on helping you, showing compassion to you. Uh, they have every intent on doing harm to you. They are like um, that trap. When it springs on you, you are going to wonder what happened. You thought they were your friend, but then they turn out not to be your friend. Uh, this, the Sadducees and the Pharisees in Christ's day uh, were masters at this. They were constantly trying to spring traps on Christ. Uh, and in Matthew chapter 22, there's one episode where they tried to do this. We'll read it. Matthew 22 verse 23 says, uh, On that day, some of the Sadducees, Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they questioned him. Notice this is going to be one of those gotcha kind of questions. They said, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up his offspring to be his brother. Now there were seven brothers in this scenario with us. And the first married and he died and he had no offspring. He left his wife to his brother. So also the second, the third, all, all the way down to the seventh. And the last of all, the woman died. And he, here they get to their gotcha question. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the seven shall she be? Like, who's she going to be married to if she had all those husbands? Uh, for they all had her as a wife. Now, what you have to stop and realize as, at, at the first blush, that the Sadducees, as, as, as we read in Matthew, they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they're asking a question, a loaded question, about something they don't even believe in. And this is typically what your uh, hindrance kind of person is like. They're going to pose a question that seems innocuous, seems innocent, but it's more like a Socratic grenade rolled into the conversation meant to destroy you. Verse 29, Jesus is very astute. He answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. Kind of an interesting statement coming from Jesus a carpenter uh, being leveled against uh, people with PhDs in the Torah. Uh, he put them in their place. 
He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which is spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. This is very interesting. And I know it's going to generate a bunch of questions because Jesus, which I can't preach about this, this morning, but Jesus said, you don't, you're asking the wrong kind of question. Uh, first of all, he says there is a resurrection because when, when it's referencing God and Abraham, it's using the present tense. I am the God of Abraham. Well, Abraham was dead, but, but, but he was still in God's presence because God is the God of those who have been brought into his presence. But Jesus says in the, in the resurrection, uh, there's, there's not this issue between who's married to who because there's not marriage. He says there's, it's just like angels in heaven. They're not married. Hence the questions I'm sure that people will want to pose um, about uh, marriage in heaven. But straight from Jesus, that's what he said. But don't get distracted by that. Focus on the fact that the Pharisees, who did not believe in the resurrection, are trying to create a hindrance for Christ. They're laying a trap for him so that when he, it is sprung on Jesus, they can, they can do away with him. Gotcha questions. Uh, I can't even begin to describe how many gotcha questions have been asked to me. I'll, I'll give you some of them. And sometimes the person is well-meaning, uh, but sometimes they're not well-meaning. Uh, they'll, they'll ask questions like this. Is, is God really, is he really, is he really intolerant? Um, will God, who is loving and kind, really send people to hell who don't believe in Jesus? I was asked that one the other day. Um, how could the Bible be the only holy book out of the many holy books? Uh, since the Bible is full of so many errors, really, why should we trust it? That's a gotcha question. Uh, uh, doesn't Jesus love people for who they are? Well, yes, he does love them for who they are, but he also causes, calls them to repent of sin. Um, another question. How, how do you believe in a literal creation by God as showcased in Genesis 1? You know, how do you, how, why would you even believe that? Um, why should we believe that science and faith are not contradictory when there's so much evidence to support the fact that they are miles apart? Another one. Since God can't control something like the spread of the coronavirus, I mean, doesn't that mean that he's not all-powerful? And doesn't that mean that he's not all-loving? Well, these are, these are usually not honest questions. I mean, sometimes they could be, but in due time, after you talk to this person, it doesn't take much to figure out that no matter how much information you give them, biblical or logical or scientific, whatever evidence you give them, uh, you're arguing with their godless presuppositions. You're not going to convince them. The Spirit of God might convict them and win them, but they have no intention on changing their viewpoint like a Pharisee or a Sadducee. They're all about tripping you up to create dissension and to hinder you. Uh, why should you keep your eye on a people like that? Uh, well, Paul's going to talk about that in the last part of verse 17, where he gives us the response to safeguarding unity. He says, when you meet a person like this who wants to destroy the unity of your, of your church, of your body, uh, he tells us exactly what we should do to them. He says, you should turn away from them. You should turn away from them. Interesting. Uh, the Greek word here is eklino. Eklino uh, literally means uh, to steer clear of a prickly shrub. I kid you not. That's exactly what it means. When I, as a former gardener, looked that up in my Greek uh, lexicon, I was quite amazed that that's what that word means because I totally understand a prickly shrub. Uh, 
Who hasn't touched a shrub without gloves on thinking that it is not prickly and you found out like touching a holly bush uh, that it was very prickly? Uh, one time I was walking down a path and I hit a, I ran into a, um, uh, a vine that had thorns all through the vine and, and, it, and, and I didn't see it and it got wrapped around my neck. And I had to untwine myself from this thing. Trust me, the next time I went by that location, I paid great attention uh, to where that prickly shrub was located uh, so that it didn't, they didn't latch onto me and cut into me. Now, Paul says, when you're dealing with a person who's destructive to unity, uh, well, you eventually get to the point, and wisdom will tell you when this happens, but you turn away from them. Translated, you don't have any more to do with them because they're caustic. Are they uh, poisonous uh, to the relationship or to the church? Now, does that mean if you turn away from them that you don't feel their, their provocational questions? Um, Jesus fielded questions from provocational people uh, quite often. In Luke chapter 6, uh, it says in verse 1, it came about that on a Sabbath, he was passing through some of the grain fields and his disciples were picking and eating the heads of the grain and they were rubbing them in their hands, which according to a Pharisee, de denoted work, which was forbidden on the Sabbath. But some of the Sab uh, Pharisees said, uh, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? No notice the gotcha question. And Jesus answered them and said, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priest alone, and he gave it to his companions? He says, haven't you even read the Torah? Which was a verbal rebuke of them. And he was saying to them, the son of man, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, most interesting what Jesus does here. He entertains their question and then he summarily dissects their question and tells them, uh, God never said that uh, he was more concerned with the minutia of the law uh, over that of the needs of a man. Uh, and he says that... Uh, that the, it was quite all right for, the, for uh, David's men to eat uh, of the bread. Therefore, it's quite all right for his, his men to work on the Sabbath, as it were, by running, rubbing the heads of the wheat together. That doesn't constitute sin. And Jesus says, by the way, uh, God never said you couldn't do that. Uh, the Pharisees had invented that. So when you're safeguarding unity and you're responding to it, sometimes you get to the point where you have to turn away. Now, Jesus eventually turns away from the Pharisees after answering their questions many times over. Uh, in chapter 13 of Matthew, after fielding many of their questions, he begins to speak in parables to judge them so that they can't understand what he's saying. Eventually, in Matthew 22, uh, verse 9 and following, uh, he he turns away and says that he's going to go to the highways and byways and call all men to come in because he has so much opposition from people who are creating dissension. Uh, and then when he gets to his trial in, in Matthew 26, uh, verse 62, uh, the high priest uh, stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? I mean, aren't you going to say something? What does it say in verse 63? Jesus kept silent. He finally got to the point where he was done answering their provocational questions. Uh, it just took him a couple of years to get there. And I think we can learn from the Lord, not that you turn away from the questions that people ask, assuming that it's going to be uh, provocational and meant to destroy unity. Sometimes it is a person that really wants to know truth, but if they constantly 
goad you and pick at you and seek to undermine you and seek to make you look uh, like you're uh, not intelligent, etc. Uh, eventually, you have to come to the point like Christ did and back up and say nothing. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. Paul gives a similar counsel. He says, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce what? Quarrels, arguments. There's always that kind of person I've run into my whole life who has all these little nitpicky things that they want to ask every single church they go to to destroy unity. Paul says, don't, don't even entertain them. 2 Timothy 2, 23. He says, don't have anything to do with these uh, foolish and stupid arguments in the NIV. Second, uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 10. He says, reject a factious man after the first and the second warning. That when you've identified a, pers identified a person that creates factions, Paul says, you, you rebuke him. And then you reject him. You turn from him. Uh, and the word for factious man here in the Greek is hereticos. Which means a person who is heretical. As Paul says in, to the Romans. Turn from those who walk away from what he calls sound doctrine. From what you have been taught. When someone tries to undermine sound doctrine about the deity of Christ. How a person is saved. Whether the Bible is the word of God or not. When they begin to defy doctrine and subvert it. Paul says you confront them uh, and then you eventually turn from them and reject them because to stay near them uh, is to create uh, disunity in the body which leads nicely to what he says in verse 18 where he gives you the actual reason to safeguard unity. Verse 18 he says for such men like this are slaves and they're not slaves of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. These men are slaves. They usually present themselves uh, in a church body as the pseudo-academics, the spiritually uh, elite, the members of the spiritual intelligentsia. They're, they're learned, they say, in the ways of the word of God, like a Pharisee would. Uh, but they are power-based. They are ego-based. Uh, and their appetite uh, consists of those things. Uh, they, they can't wait until they flatter people and tell people what they want to hear so they can worm your way, their way into your life or into your church uh, to, after they've earned your trust, then they can begin to sow seeds of disunity. Let me illustrate how this works. Because uh, I've run into this person in my pastoral career. Uh, as a new pastor, I ran into a, a lady one time. Very nice lady. Uh, she and her husband, great couple. Liz and I spent uh, much time with them. Uh, went to dinner with them. Went places with them. Um, but it became pretty apparent to me that the woman, uh, as I uh, was growing the church, um, there was a whole lot of gossip going on in the church. And I found out the origin of it was this particular woman. So as a pastor, I can't then say, I'm not going to say anything about that. I have to address it. So I addressed it. Uh, she did not like that very much, as you can imagine. She did not want to repent of that activity. Um, and so what she did is she began to go throughout the church and build friendships with other ladies. Uh, and they began to listen to her. She keyed on one of our key women in our church and became uh, good friends with her. Uh, and I told this key woman, you need to be very careful of that person because of said issue. Um, it didn't take too long before that young lady who was a key leader in our church uh, could not tell the difference between truth and error, between who was telling her the truth and who was telling her error, and it completely messed up her life and all the ladies that she was dealing with. And then she left the church. 
because she couldn't tell who was telling her the truth and who was, who was not telling her the truth. Uh, because that woman had done exactly what Paul said. Flattered her with smooth talking, meant on deceiving the heart of the person in question. That young lady was deceived by this older lady. Paul says, pay attention to those kind of people. Paul says in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, uh, he prophesies and says the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their engineers want to hear. Paul says the, the time is going to come. Well, the time is here when in the church, people will surround themselves with people who flatter them, say nice things. I would rather have friends who told me the truth, who leveled with me and who were good friends and people that you could trust than those who flatter you. So, pragmatically, you need to stop and ask yourself, am I personally listening to somebody that I shouldn't be listening to because they create division and they create dissension? And if that is the case, then perhaps it is time to, to, to move away from them. Because it's like the coronavirus. Uh, they tell us that if we all uh, socially distance ourselves from each other, that this thing eventually will die out and, and, and go away. And as I've thought about my sermon this week, that's, that's similar to what Paul's saying here. If you have a person who's a factuous person, but nobody gives them any airtime, well, that, that virus of their issues eventually goes away, and then unity triumphs. In verse 19, Paul turns and he gives a, a brief request to safeguard unity. He says, For the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore... I am rejoicing over you. Translated, Paul says, uh, let me just stop and say, I hear about your church. It's a very unified church. Uh, and I hear about your maturity. He said, I'm excited about your Christian maturity. We could equally, equally say that about our church. That I'm excited about your obedience and the unity that's here. But then he puts in a, well, an adverse clause. He says, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. I want you to be wise in what is good, innocent in what is evil. But what does he, he mean by that? I think what he means is that if you surround yourself with people that are uh, all about division, all about facts, uh, that can taint your thinking. And you can learn their ways from them, whether you want to or not. Uh, and you can become them and do the things that they are doing because you're imprinting on what they're all telling you. Paul says you shouldn't really pay attention to evil things. You should be paying attention to uh, godly things and being innocent about godless things. Years ago, um, I was sitting with my uh, CPA uh, and we were just chatting as he's working on my taxes. And uh, I said, hey, how's the, you know, how's the CPA world going? And he said, well, I... Uh, uh, I, 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 I'm, I've just dealt with a, a church where the secretary at the church embezzled thousands of dollars from the church. She'd done it for years. I'm like, wow, that's unbelievable. How tragic. Uh, and then I asked the, the next logical question because I'm an inquisitive person. I said, uh, could you explain to me exactly how did she do that? Like, how did she, how did she steal all that money? And uh, my friend uh, Gordon just stared at me for a long time. And I'm like, Gordon, didn't you hear my question? I said, how did, how did she... How did she go about doing all that? He still didn't say anything. And then it dawned on me, he didn't want to educate me in the ways of evil. Then I said, oh, I see what you're doing. Uh, you don't want me to even be tempted to do that, which I'm not. But you don't want me to even know about it. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. Focus on good things with good people, good activity, godly activity. Uh, steer clear of that which is evil to the point where you don't even know how to even think that evil stuff up. 
that by definition breeds unity when there's innocence in the body of Christ. And then in verse 20, we have what I would call the realization of safeguarding unity. Like down the road of time, what can we look forward to? Notice what Paul says here. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, it's been 2,000 years. And Paul says by way of prophecy that it's not going to be long than the devil who's usually behind uh, church uh, issues, factions, divisions between people. Uh, that's usually uh, orientated back to the devil. He's all about that. But Paul says, don't, don't worry. One day the Lord's coming and he will crush the devil completely. Well, when will that happen? Well, after the rapture of the church, after the seven-year tribulation, after the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, uh, we know uh, from Revelation 20 that when Jesus returns, the, the, the very first thing that he does is he takes the old devil and he throws him in the lake of fire for all eternity. He has now crushed him. Crushed him. That uh, gives me great hope when I look at my world around me to know that one day the old devil that's behind secular factions and, and sacred factions, one day the Lord himself shall deal with him. Which means uh, to me that good, good, uh, not evil, will triumph because the crusher, Jesus, is coming. That means that light will overpower darkness because the crusher, Jesus, is coming. That means that truth will overcome falsity because the crusher, who is Jesus, is coming. That means unity will replace disunity because the crusher, Jesus, is coming. That means wholesomeness will replace perversion because the crusher is coming. Jesus is coming. And when he comes, that prince of peace will establish peace as prophesied in Psalm 2 with a rod of iron. He will deal with the devil himself. We should be encouraged, especially in a day in which we live when there's so much division that the Lord who is peace has not only given us through Paul's pen the methods by which to guard the unity of our body, but also the hope that one day uh, Jesus himself uh, will deal with the devil himself and then we shall know peace for all eternity. Might you have a, a, a great day with your family. May God protect you. Uh, may he uplift you. May he put wind in your cells and give you joy uh, as you live for him in, in difficult times. And above all things, might he use you as one of the many saints in our church to guard the precious unity that he's given us as a body of Christ. Amen.